Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. This is part two of our two-part podcast series on AKI for the ED doc. In this part, Ed Etchells, Burke Tillman, and I are going to dig a bit deeper into our stepwise approach to AKI, concentrating on the edematous patient. Then we'll discuss the IV crystalloid of choice in patients with AKI and the AKI dialysis indications and timing. We'll ask the question, are piperacillin and vancomycin contraindicated in patients with severe AKI? We'll ask, is vasopressin preferred over norepinephrine for patients with AKI and septic shock? And is there a role for giving sodium bicarb in AKI patients? We'll clear up the confusion about when to stop ACEs and ARBs in the renal patient and the intricacies of giving NSAIDs in AKI patients. We'll wrap up with some disposition decisions and a review of the general approach. Now, don't forget that this podcast is only part of the EM Cases learning system. If you sign up for our newsletter, Just the Nuggets emails and Q&A Pearl of the Week emails, you'll get the latest videos, blogs, quizzes, tips, pearls, and pitfalls to solidify your knowledge using spaced multimodal repetition. And now, ED AKI Management. I want to get on to the treatment of AKI. Dr. Etchells, you beautifully outlined your approach, the four-stemmed approach, the PVR, the urine dip, monitoring the urine output, and avoiding nephrotoxins. And then your approach in terms of asking, is the person adequately perfusing? Do they have pulmonary edema? Do they have peripheral edema? And if none of the above, give them fluid. Can you just kind of go through each of those for us in more specifics in terms of your treatment approach to AKI? Sure. So I'll start with the four things you must always do for every patient. Check the PVR. Uh, If it's elevated, insert a catheter. Second is always get a urine dip because if there's blood and protein, you're probably going to need to get an internist or nephrologist to help you figure that out. That way you're not going to miss glomerulonephritis. You're probably not going to miss most tubular causes of acute kidney injury. Next is monitor the urine output. That's essential in all cases, and obviously avoiding the nephrotoxins. So that's management that's always the right thing to do. We haven't talked about nephrotoxins, so I just want to put in a plug for no ACEs or ARBs, because they paralyze the primary renal defense to hypovolemia. So you must give the patient's kidney a chance to recover from hypovolemia. Don't give them their ACE. Don't give them their ARB while they're in the emergency department. And next is nonsteroidals. You cannot give them nonsteroidals. They inhibit the primary renal defense to hypovolemia. So please don't give nonsteroidals. Then I get into the details. So again, if the patient's got inadequate perfusion. You manage them as you manage any shock patient. Honestly, I just call Dr. Tillman because I don't do that very well anymore. (laughs) Second is, does the patient have pulmonary edema? Because if they have pulmonary edema, it's got to be right to give them some furosemide. 
plus whatever else you need to do to manage their pulmonary edema. If you improve the forward cardiac function, then their kidneys uh, are going to benefit. Again, the only drug I probably wouldn't give that day for most patients with pulmonary edema and an acute kidney injury is their ACE inhibitor or their ARB. Next is the patients who only have peripheral edema without pulmonary edema. So my first question there is, do they have cirrhosis? Because if they have cirrhosis, it's a very complicated case. Much more thinking is required about the correct first steps, but I'm going to put them into a different category. I can come back to that if you want, but to me, those are red flag, tricky cases. And then there's all the other causes of peripheral edema. And what I do there is I just make sure I'm not missing a hypervolemic patient. So I look for sacral edema, I look for thigh edema, and I look for pleural effusions, and I look at the JVP. If I see any of those are abnormal and pushing me towards hypervolemia, I'm going to give that patient some furosemide. If I see none of those things, then the patient might just have leg edema for a non-systemic reason. For example, they have varicose veins, they're on drugs that cause edema, maybe they have lymphedema, maybe they have myxedema. So those patients, I'm probably going to give them some volume because most of them are probably going to be hypovolemic. If the patient has adequate perfusion, no pulmonary edema, no peripheral edema, I'm going to give them crystalloid or blood because that's what they need. Then I go back to the other four golden rules, recheck PVR, recheck the urine dip if it's not back yet, and monitor urine output, and then I know what I'm doing. Beautiful. So I agree with everything that Dr. Etchells just said. And I wanted to quickly touch on the cardiac patient because there are two patient populations there. So I find the patients who have AKI secondary to a cardiogenic cause to sometimes be the most difficult ones to manage. And I think of sort of two general categories. There is the patient who comes in with what looks like a hypertensive crisis. So they have pulmonary edema, their blood pressure is elevated, and as you're doing the blood work, you realize they're also having some AKI. This patient population, I'm going to start them on nitrates and BiPAP. And I'm sure that in one of the previous episodes, we've discussed an approach to the acute CHF patient. And these patients respond very well to lowering their afterload. And that will actually improve their forward flow as well. And will start helping them make urine and will improve their kidney function. So although these, these patients come in feeling cold and wet, they have a good blood pressure reserve. And so I'm going to start with non-invasive bilevel ventilation and some nitrates to help them out. The hardest patients I find are the ones who come in cold and wet, but also in shock. So they're very similar to the last patient population, but instead of having a systolic of 170 or 190, their systolic is 70 or 90. These patients are really challenging because they may not have the ability to move fluid forward due to pump malfunction, but may not also have a lot of fluid intravascularly as well. So how do I support these patients? I want to try and help with their forward flow, which tends to mean an inotrope, but most of our inotropic agents are dropping your blood pressure. So I'm going to be starting something like norepinephrine, to help give myself a base of blood pressure to work with, then add on an inotrope. 
And I want to involve my cardiology colleagues as I'm doing this because I really want to understand what their heart's doing. And although I can do point of care echo, I'm not a certified echocardiographer, and there's going to be very important clues you're looking for. And you want to see how the right heart and the left heart are interacting because sometimes you need to aggressively pull off fluids to help with the cardiac function and understanding what the heart's doing and what both sides of the heart look like can really help make those decisions. So what I'm acutely doing, starting with norepinephrine, still going to put them on non-invasive bilevel ventilation and likely add on an inotrope. I preferentially use dibutamine because I find it easier to titrate, but the common drugs are dibutamine and milrinone. So all I'd say is patients who come in with acute kidney injury and high blood pressure with CHF, nitrates and BiPAP, a bit easier to go down that pathway. The hypotensive cold and wet patient is really challenging. Get the help you can. You're probably going to need to bring their blood pressure up to start with to help move fluid forward. Yeah, luckily it's, you know, 95% of the patients that we see in CHF have plenty of blood pressure to work with. All right, Dr. Etchells, I want to speak a little bit more generally. If you got a patient with an elevated creatinine, you're not really sure why. Uh, you've given them some fluid. It hasn't really helped. What are kind of the indications for getting an internist help, <laughs> for lack of a, a better phrase? Like, what are the indica- uh, possible indications for admission, in other words, for AKI patients? Definitely want to see any patient with blood or protein in the urine. Definitely want to see a patient whose creatinine is getting worse despite initial management, either with usually volume, occasionally diuretics, and all the other things that Dr. Tillman beautifully outlined. Uh, We want to see patients where you cannot get adequate urine output within four to six hours. They need help. You can't send those patients home. Great. Yeah, those are some good things just to think about in terms of because, you know, we often have patients with their, you know, their creatins above baseline, not too bad. You're not exactly sure why it's still that high, even though you've given some fluids. And sometimes those are tough disposition decisions. So that's definitely helpful. I want to talk a little bit more about dialysis and indications for dialysis and timing of dialysis. I kind of think of AKI management simply as the three Fs, which is Foley, fluids, and frickin' dialysis. And the reason I say frickin' is because almost always I find it really difficult and frustrating to get emergency dialysis in my hospital. And I imagine that most community hospitals are are pretty similar. You know, they don't have some big dialysis unit eagerly waiting to take their patients from the emergency department. So let's dig into a little bit further to the three Fs. So we've talked about the Foley, but we haven't talked in detail about the fluids and uh, the dialysis. We did mention that ringers would be your fluid of choice in the patient with rhabdo. And we did mention the AEIOU mnemonic for indications for dialysis. But I want to talk about that a little bit more. Dr. Tillman, what is the fluid of choice in general for AKI patients? And what kind of volumes should we be giving? So there's still ongoing debate about the fluid of choice, either just by opening Twitter, 
or if you look at the trials that are being done. And this is really a debate between using a fluid like normal saline or using a balanced solution, which at where I work is Ringer's lactate. So the trials that have started to look at this are SMART and SALT-ED, where they're looking at giving critically ill patients or hospitalized patients normal saline or balanced solution. Further follow-up studies these have suggested if you have a critically ill patient who you think might end up in the ICU, they may have a benefit if you start with a balanced solution right away and continue a balanced solution throughout. If we flip to a balanced solution later on, there's probably not much benefit. That being said, we're not seeing huge relative risks here. We're working in a small area of benefit. Yeah, so so my understanding was that those studies, it was actually, that was the reason why some people were advocating for ringers was specifically for the renal failure, that it actually did decrease the, the risk of, of AKI and, and dialysis. So when you're looking at sort of secondary outcomes and subgroups, it suggests that, but the challenge really is these are smaller, although well done, smaller studies using ICUs within the same hospital. So hard to extrapolate this data to a general population of different hospitals with different practices. I've drank the Kool-Aid. I give people ringers lactate. Can I say this is 100% firmly supported by the evidence and everyone should be doing this and never give normal saline again? I'd probably be overstating what the evidence shows. But my practice is to give ringers lactate. And the big reason is the fact that it is a balanced solution and that it's not creating a further acidotic environment relative to normal saline. That being said, our balanced solutions are still slightly more acidotic than the human body. So you do want to pay attention to the acid base. The other question that always comes up is potassium. You can't give this patient potassium. Remember the low concentration of potassium in ringers, first of all and the effect that an acidotic environment has. Probably the best examples I've seen of this are studies looking at renal transplant patients who during the renal transplant where they are anephric have been infused with two different fluids and giving normal saline increases the potassium to a greater extent relative to ringers. So yes, I do use ringers. I think it probably is better, I can't say 100% for sure that the evidence is going to support me on that. That's the ringers versus normal saline controversy, which I think will continue to be a controversy. What about the volume? I mean, are you just giving the volume that you need until the patient seems to be euvolemic and you're looking at the urine output and POCUS and other things like we would with any other patient? Or is there something special in in AKI patients in terms of volume? So... I wish there was something special, but really that is exactly what I'm doing. Most of the time, this is sepsis. It's what you most commonly see in the ICU. And again, I think back to our trials of early goal-directed therapies. And they're getting 1.5 to 2.5 liters sort of in the first 24 hours. And so, yes, when I see these patients, I'm going to give them a liter bolus. I don't put a lot of critically ill patients on continuous IV fluid but that's not because I don't think they need ongoing fluid. It's that once you make it to an ICU, you're getting so much bolus IV medication that we are exceeding what someone would think of a routine total fluid intake. So my therapy is to give you intermittent boluses to get to a point where I think you are adequately fluid resuscitated based on all of my clinical exams. 
I'm going to use pulse pressure variation in someone who is normal sinus rhythm on a ventilator and adding in POCUS to help with the clinical information I have. I want to still talk about uh, dialysis and bicarb. So first dialysis, we talked about the indications for dialysis. Um, what about the timing of dialysis? Do these patients who fulfill an indication for dialysis, so let's say they have uncontrollable pulmonary edema and their creatinine is through the roof and you've tried everything and their blood pressure is going down and they're maxed out on all the medications, they need dialysis. What about the timing of dialysis? I understand there's some recent evidence that suggests that uh, delayed dialysis might be even better than immediate dialysis in a lot of these patients. Yeah, so it's very interesting. When I was going through my training, which isn't that long ago, I was really gung-ho. I was like, you know what? This patient has kidney injury we should probably just get them on dialysis. They're going to end up on it in three days anyways. Just start it now. Let's move their care forward. So the trial you're alluding to is the START-AKI trial that came out in the New England Journal this year. And it was really interesting because they took patients who didn't need dialysis right now, meet one of those clear criteria, which is usually hyperkalemia or a toxin or a a profound acid-based disturbance, but really hyperkalemia or toxin just makes us do dialysis. So patients who are like, we might need it, we might not, and randomized to starting them now or waiting till there was nothing else we could do other than dialysis. And what this trial showed is we're not changing their mortality risk by starting them on dialysis earlier or later. But the people who were started on dialysis later overall needed less dialysis so it seems if we're just patient, we might not end up needing it. And also, less of them ended up being on chronic dialysis. I'm not exactly sure why that happens. I'm not a nephrologist. But it appears that when we start these people on dialysis earlier, we may be starting down a pathway that has them continue on dialysis. Because of this evidence, and there's some earlier evidence as well, this isn't sort of a one-off trial, there's a Kiki, which is a bit older as well, with all the evidence saying that early dialysis is not beneficial and there may be some adverse outcomes associated with it, I really try and wait until there is a true bill indication. Like I said, if they have hyperkalemia and especially if this is causing them to have peak T's or other ECG disturbances, I want emergent dialysis now. If they've ingested a dialyzable toxin, so I think we probably most often think of a toxic alcohol, I want dialysis now. These aren't situations where I'm waiting it out. If someone's acidotic, we have ways of buffering you. We can use bicarb. Maybe we can walk through this. If you have fluid overload, well, we have non-invasive ventilation. We have invasive ventilation. Again, maybe we can get you through this. And then uremia is the last one, and that's a very difficult diagnosis to make and doesn't usually push me to emergent dialysis 
excluding the uremic pericarditis or pericardial effusions where I think that's causing a life threat. But for the most part, I'm really going to try and walk a patient through, try not to use dialysis unless we have to to get through their disease. Now for our advertising segment brought to you by Metricade, the amazing scheduling system. Metricade can actually predict what the average physician-to-time assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. You know, some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four or five patients an hour. If your group wants, Metricade will build the schedule based on this information as well as what shifts everyone prefers to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. We've mentioned a couple of times that the most common reason to be in an ICU with AKI is septic shock. And that brings up what antibiotics you're going to give to the patient who's in septic shock with obvious AKI. And this is pretty controversial because historically, uh, my understanding was that both vancomycin and piptase could cause AKI. And there was a suggestion historically, again, that maybe we shouldn't be using these medications for patients in septic shock, which just happens to be the two medications that we use most often in patients with septic shock. So Dr. Tillman, can we be using Vanco and Piptase in patients with septic shock who also have AKI? So the short answer I would say is yes, we can use these drugs. As vancomycin has sort of evolved and it's having less impurities, probably its nephrotoxic characteristics have gone down. And although there may be an interaction between piptazo and vancomycin that increases the potential risk, it's not at a point where we're demonstrating a major signal. And again, this strikes me similar to our contrast discussion earlier, is likely many of our antibiotics can be harder on the kidneys. They're trying to clear these medications that are abnormal. But the choice we're making is giving the best treatment for the disease that's making them sick or not treating the disease that's making them sick. And when we have limited other options, we're going to use Piptazo and Vanco. And it's why some of the older medications, so we definitely use less aminoglycosides. Amphotericin has changed over time. So it shows that we are working as a community to minimize the risk, but also understand that Sometimes the disease puts us between a rock and the hard place, and these are the best treatments we have. All right. So suffice to say that for the really sick patient in septic shock, Piptase and Vanco are okay to give, even if the patient is in acute renal failure, has AKI, because we don't know with 100% certainty if they're safe or not still. It's still quite controversial, although it seems like it's safe. And the patients who you do have other options, I mean, I wouldn't think why you would be giving Piptase in really any other situation, but let's say someone has a blood culture that shows that they're resistant to everything else and they're not very sick, for example, those will be some difficult decisions to make that you might want to speak to your uh, infectious disease specialists and your intensivist about. The next thing that comes up in terms of the patient with septic shock and AKI is what vasopressor to use. So in the septic shock patient without AKI, norepinephrine has become pretty much the standard as your initial vasopressor of choice. But my understanding is that if a patient has significant AKI, 
that there should be a consideration for vasopressin and that there's been some recent literature on this as well. Could you update us on that, Dr. Tillman? For sure. So the interest in vasopressin with AKI actually started back with the VAST trial, and there's some biologic evidence before that, where the suggestion in a secondary analysis of this trial was that patients who were started on vasopressin or the vasopressin arm tended to progress slower towards renal failure. So based on the biologic plausibility and this signal, there were a couple more trials. So we're looking at things like Vanish and Vanx2, where they were saying, you know, if we take these septic patients, specifically the ones with AKI, are we going to change their outcome? And the results have been difficult to interpret. So I'm going to touch on Vanish, which showed that there was a difference in patients who got renal replacement therapy. Specifically, those who were on vasopressin needed dialysis less. That seems pretty darn good. But there was no difference in the risk of developing AKI. And so that was sort of confusing. And there's now been a systematic review using individual patient data. And overall, they've shown that mortality definitely isn't changing. There is a suggestion that maybe there is a decreased risk of renal replacement therapy, but it has really wide confidence intervals. And depending on the models you use to deal with data from different trials, it's actually no longer significant. So I don't think the story's closed on vasopressin and AKI, but we know currently vasopressin is more expensive than norepinephrine to utilize. There are different side effects to it, and there's not a strong signal for benefit. So I'm not going out of my way to start patients on vasopressin. But I'm still interested in it, and it, I still think of it in my mind, and I expect we haven't heard the last of this research. Okay. So suffice to say that from an emergency physician perspective, we're very comfortable with norepinephrine. Start the norepinephrine and speak to your intensivist if the patient's heading for the ICU with septic shock and AKI. Ask them, do you want vasopressin? That's something that they may want to consider, but we don't have a, a very strong evidence base to be switching from norepinephrine to vasopressin, at least not initially. This isn't the time to go learning a new drug or changing standard practice. It doesn't seem that way to me. Got it. Okay. The last drug I want to talk about when it comes to the septic shock patient and AKI uh, is bicarb. Now, we talked about this, Dr. Tillman, in our DKA episode. Now, we know that generally speaking in the critically ill patient with acidosis and a low bicarb that there's really no good evidence for any mortality benefit for giving bicarb, but that the sort of standard seems to be that if we're getting into pHs of 6.9 or lower, that it's reasonable to give bicarb. What about the patient specifically with AKI? Does that change our sort of general approach to giving bicarb? Which patients with AKI who are really sick need bicarb? This is a really interesting question. And it's another topic of debate. The difference really when you're thinking of the AKI patients versus the other patients is their acidosis is being driven by the fact that their kidneys aren't able to compensate anymore. So it's not just their sepsis that's making them acidotic or their hemorrhage or what have you. It's the kidney injury itself. So that's what led to the thought of maybe if we give these patients bicarb back, we can help the situation or at the very least avoid dialysis. 
The strongest evidence to this is the BICAR ICU trial, which had a predefined subgroup of patients with AKI. And they saw that they did have improved outcomes in these patients if they started them on bicarb infusions. There are some other smaller trials that also suggest that if you have a patient with serious AKI, so it's usually stage 3 AKI, so if they have pretty bad AKI and they have refractory acidosis, it seems that maybe putting them on bicarb will stop you from going to dialysis. Does this mean bicarb fixes them? Or does it make the numbers look better and then we don't put them on dialysis? I'm not entirely sure. But with the suggestions of benefits and no signal to harm in these trials, I do use bicarb in patients with bad AKI and refractory acidosis. All right. So just reviewing there, in terms of the septic patient with AKI, vanco and piptase, even though historically have been a no-no in AKI patients, it's probably okay to give them for the patient in septic shock, certainly. In terms of the vasopressor of choice, it's controversial, and there may be a signal that vasopressin might have an advantage over norepinephrine, but at present, it's probably best from an emergency perspective to continue to do what we're with what we're used to, and that's give norepinephrine. And then in terms of giving bicarb, the bottom line is, if they have refractory acidosis and AKI, then bicarb is certainly reasonable. So Dr. Etchells, you made it pretty clear that a patient who's sick with AKI in our emergency department should not be given an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. However, we see lots of patients who are sending home who might have a little bump in their creatinine. I find it really confusing, actually, because so many patients who have chronic renal insufficiency will be on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB to help treat their chronic renal insufficiency. But then, of course, the really sick patient with acute renal failure, we want to avoid them. So there's that whole sort of middle group. And we do have lots of these patients that might have a little bump in their creatinine and we're sending them home and they're either on an ACE or maybe we should be thinking about putting them on on an ACE for some other reason. Which patients do we absolutely need to stop the ACE and which patients are okay to go home on an ACE uh, if they have some renal insufficiency? Yeah, it's a great question, Anton. I think the problem arises because we use ACE inhibitors for patients with stable chronic kidney disease to reduce progression over many years. When we start ACE inhibitors in that setting, we can expect that their creatinine will go up. It's an expected consequence of starting an ACE inhibitor, and we would tolerate a 10, maybe even a 15% changing their creatinine as an expected consequence of initiating ACE inhibitors in a stable patient. But we wouldn't want it to go any higher than that. And if we see it going any higher than that, then we would back off on that treatment. The assumption here, though, is that the patient is stable and they're ingesting salt water and food as they normally should, and they are excreting salt water and urea as they normally should. If you then add on any other nephrologic insult, we advise patients to stop taking their ACE and ARBs. We call it sick day advice. So in the emergency room setting, I think you're well within your rights to tell the sick patient 
who's well enough to go home, but whose oral intake is not quite back to normal, whose volume status may still be a little bit reduced, who has a mild AKI for reversible causes like hypovolemia, you tell them not to take their ACE or ARB and to check in with their outpatient physician within a couple of days, reassess their intake, reassess their volume status, reassess their blood pressure, and if warranted, check their kidney function upon reinitiation of the drug. Excellent. I have a similar question when it comes to NSAIDs. So we all know to avoid NSAIDs in the patient who has overt kidney failure, but we often have patients in the emergency department that we don't even have a baseline creatinine on. And, you know, we're still in the throes of the opioid pandemic, if you want to call it that. We want to try and avoid opioids whenever we can. So we give patients a lot of scripts for acetaminophen and and NSAIDs. What advice would you give ED docs who are about to write a prescription for an NSAID when it comes to precipitating AKI? Let's say you have a patient who's 75 years old with a history of hypertension, diabetes, and their kidney function's been pretty good, but maybe in the past it's it's been a little bit off. Should we absolutely never give those patients NSAIDs? It all boils down to risk assessment when you're prescribing any drug, including NSAIDs. So if I had a 75-year-old patient who has hypertension, I would be cautious. I'd be even more cautious if they had a history of mild chronic kidney disease. I would be more cautious if they had a history of heart failure. I would be cautious if they had a history of cirrhosis. All of these things put the patient at risk. Their biggest risk is actually still GI bleeding, so that's another huge question that you need to address with the patient before you write that prescription. If the patient has a lot of risks of complications of NSAIDs, I would look for other alternatives. I'm not saying give them opioids. It's perhaps true that topical NSAIDs are safer than oral NSAIDs, so you could try those things. You could try acetaminophen. If you feel that there's no other alternative except an NSAID, just remember that not all NSAIDs are created equal. And depending on the type of NSAID and the formulation and the dose, the renal risks are different. So for example, lower dose ibuprofen is going to be safer than higher dose naproxen. And they're both probably safer than low dose indomethacin. So if I'm going to prescribe an NSAID, I'm going to give low-dose ibuprofen to start, and then I'm going to have them reassessed by their family physician within 48 hours. And if warranted, I'll check their kidney function then, because if you're going to run into trouble, you're going to run into it pretty quickly. Those are patients where if they're also on an ACE or an ARB, you've got to be careful because the combination of an ACE or ARB with an NSAID is really putting the kidney at risk. All right. Those are great little uh, nuances. So I guess the principles are that complications of NSAIDs are dose dependent. We know that the ceiling dose for ibuprofen is almost always 400 milligrams. So we want to, we don't want to be giving more than that anyhow. You might want to lower the dose in patients who you're worried about their kidneys and that ibuprofen is probably the safest one. The other thing that comes up that's been studied very well is the ceiling dose for uh, IV toradol which we give a lot of in the emergency department, that the ceiling dose is 10 milligrams that we've talked about on, on previous episodes. 
So some things to consider patients who are at risk for renal disease in terms of NSAIDs. I want to wrap up the podcast by giving you guys the opportunity to summarize how you manage patients with AKI based on what we've talked about in the podcast. Certainly. I accept your challenge of trying to do a two-minute summary of AKI treatment. I think one of the most important things to remember is the clues to the etiology are in the history. So you're going to be getting the history while you're starting your treatment. The first part of your workup is looking for life threats. It's what we do every day in the emergency department. First job is to make sure whatever's going on isn't going to kill them. When we're thinking of AKI, that means we're screening for arrhythmias, we're looking at the potassium, we're looking for acidosis, and we're looking for pulmonary edema. So that's what you're starting with, and you're starting treatment for those life threats while you're doing everything else. And it may be that you're not going to get the history until after you fix those life threats. Once you've dealt with that, most of these patients are going to need some fluid and a PVR or a Foley in the sick ones. Have a lot of respect for new hypertension in AKI, as this gets you those weird diseases that you have Dr. Etchells and his colleagues to help us out with, and have respect for people who are cold, wet, and have AKI, because they can be really hard to take care of, especially when they're hypotensive. The last thing that took me a while to learn as an emergency doctor at an academic center was an elevated creatinine doesn't automatically mean an admission. We can send a lot of these patients home, and patients prefer to be home. So it's really important in your mind to think of who are the people who need to come in? Who are the sick ones? These are the hyperkalemic ones, the aneuric ones, the people who are not responding to your initial therapy. Who are the people who need urgent or emergent workup? So the new blood in the urine, the new protein in the urine, they need quick workup. And who are the people who need to follow up on a urgent basis, which is a couple days to a week? That's probably any new AKI you can't explain. That's not causing them to come into hospital. And all the people you have to change their drugs on. Because as we've talked about ad nauseum, the kidneys clear the drugs and there's a lot of drugs that can mess this up. So if you're changing their medications, someone, their primary care provider, hopefully if they have one, is going to need to follow this up for you. Awesome. Love it. And Dr. Etchells, in two minutes, your approach again to the AKI patient. Thanks, Anton. So there are four things that are always the right thing to do. First is check the PVR. And if you're not sure, insert a Foley. Please record the amount of urine initially drained from the bladder if you put in a Foley. Get a urine dip, monitor the urine output, and no additional nephrotoxins, which means minimize or avoid contrast, no ARBs, no ACE inhibitors, no nonsteroidals. In terms of the assessment of the patient for cause and initial management, question one is, is the systemic perfusion adequate? If it's not, I call Dr. Tillman and get his help. Question two is, does the patient have pulmonary edema? If they do, if they also have peripheral edema, I'm going to give them furosemide. If they don't have peripheral edema, then I'm going to call Dr. Tillman because they probably need nitrates and BiPAP, as he beautifully outlined. If the patient only has peripheral edema, I want to know if they have cirrhosis. If they have cirrhosis with an acute kidney injury, that's a tough case. We are happy to help. 
the right thing to do depends on the overall assessment of the patient, but it's usually give them crystalloid, give them albumin, and in a ward setting, give them some midodrine and some octreotide. If the patient has peripheral edema but does not have cirrhosis, I'm going to usually give that patient some volume unless I see other signs of volume overload, such as thigh edema, sacral edema, or pleural effusions. If there's no edema at all, I ask myself, what am I doing? Give this patient some volume and see what happens. Excellent. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Those two approaches, I think, will really help emergency physicians out there with the elusive kidney to uh, to most of us. This is something we've all struggled with in terms of what we do with a patient with this high creatinine that we don't know what's going on. And I think going forward, I'm certainly going to feel a lot more comfortable handling these patients in the emergency department. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you for having us. It's always a thrill to be back. Thank you so much. 